Um, thank you so much for inviting me, Tara Fools, and the organizers. Um, I really enjoyed learning with you all last year, and I'm so honored to be back here. Um, I know that this is the third and final class in a three-part series on mind, body, and soul. And I was designated to talk about the soul, and I think, in, at least when I was originally told about it, to talk about the soul from the perspective of the Rambam. So it's a hard topic to talk about, I think, because I think it's clear what we mean when we say mind and when we say body. Like, probably the class about Judaism and the mind was about Judaism and the intellectual realm, and the, the body was about Judaism and the physical realm. So what does that mean that the soul class is about? Is Does that mean that it's about Judaism and the spiritual, emotional, psychological? Because that's like the, the category that my brain goes to, but is that what you were thinking when you were thinking about soul? Um, and I think... There are some common... I guess we could start by saying that, actually I'll start by saying this, uh, this thing. It happens to be very fitting because this week's parasha talks about the commandment to love God, it's the second part of the Shema. And last week's parasha had the same phrase, but in the singular, so there's a reference to loving God with your whole heart and your whole soul. Now, I think my instinct would be to just say that's figurative language for saying just love God with all of your being. Just be very invested in this pursuit. Is, you know, does that mean is meaning something literal by saying your whole heart and your whole soul? But I think that since, anyway, this is our topic, maybe an understanding of what the soul means could give us an added layer to what the commandment to love God with all our soul means. Um, but I feel like I have to start, I have to start with a caveat, which is that I think it's really hard to talk about this topic without being either fluffy or like overly philosophical and abstract. So thank you for this challenge. I'm very excited. <laughs> but I, I really, I just want, I just want to like be clear about that because I think when we talk about the mind, we're talking about the brain, we talk about the body, we're talking about everything else. And I don't know what we're talking about. We talk about the soul exactly. Maybe it's spirit, emotion, psychology. So I think we also have to start with some common conceptions or maybe some would say misconceptions about what the soul is. So from like ancient Greece through probably at least the 19th century, there's understanding of this there's an understanding that came to be known as mind-body dualism or also substance dualism, which means that a person is made of two substances, the body, the physical, and the soul, which is the spiritual. And these 
entities are completely distinct. Like we have a body, we have a soul, we have physicality, and we have spirit, and these things are not related to each other at all. And it produced what you probably all know, like without maybe without realizing that you know, like Rene Descartes was this French philosopher in the 16th century who said, I think, therefore I am. Okay, and he kind of raised that the, this mind-body dualism raises a mind-body problem because how could it be? It's very, this very technical philosophical question, like how could it be that a spirit that's disembodied is contained within a physical body? Okay, but that's a philosophical question that I'm not really so interested in. I think that this mind, thinking about mind and body, physical and spiritual, as these two distinct entities also has other problems for like the way we live. Because what ends up happening is that, first of all, there are, I guess, three, three things or two and a half things. One is that it assumes these like neat separations between different parts of the self that aren't necessarily so neatly separated and we might be limiting ourselves by thinking about it like that. So for example, today we would say there's definitely a connection between the mind and the body. We, asso we associate the brain, the, or the organ of the brain as like the seed of the mind. So of course there's a connection between mind and body. Um, and more like controversially maybe, I think it also produces like certain hierarchies that I think are gendered. Okay, so one is that it makes it that like the body is this thing that we need to overcome to get to like the main purpose, which is the spirit. And so we then associate the body with all like the bad parts of being a person the animalistic drives, you know, our desires, our urges. We need to eat. We need to go to the bathroom. It's, like, bad. And we're basically trying to, like, transcend our bodies to become spirit. And I think that that hierarchy is problematic for, like, our whole, we have an embodied existence. So it's sort of, it's, that's, how is that going to affect the way I relate to myself and the way it relates to other people? If I'm sort of, I don't know, am I carrying around like this guilt for having a body? I don't, there's something that seems problematic to you about it. Okay, and this is the part where I might lose you and you should definitely feel free to debate me on this and interrupt me at any point. I think that once you have a hierarchy, that hierarchy becomes gendered. It's inevitable. Where we've been talking about I just was talking about mind and body, but let's say if I add soul, and the assumption is that body is physical and soul is emotion, spirit, and mind is intellect. I believe that we all associate unintentionally the mind with masculinity. Men are rational and they're less emotional and women are emotional, we cry and men don't cry. And then there's like a preoccupation, I think, in society and even in Jewish culture with the female body 
and the feelings that it arouses in men. Should we cover ourselves? The laws of tzniut, the laws of tara hamishpacha are all about regulating the female body. And if there's a hierarchy then where the body is sort of the lowest thing that we're trying to transcend to be spirit and we associate that with the feminine and even the emotional realm is like lower than the intellectual realm and we feminize that. And then the ho- so the highest state of being is to be mind and male. So now you can, okay. I'm curious what you think about that. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I don't think that's true. Okay. I actually think that the feminine is controlled has more control, like men are more impulsive, let's say, and maybe they maybe they do have a higher, like it, it seems as if they do, but in reality, the women are controlling that emotion and controlling, they're almost controlling the male quietly. Yeah, I think you're right. The man doesn't have emotions. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you, but do you see, though, what's happening, though? Then it's like we're, men don't have emotions, but women do. So that, that's scary to me yeah, to, like, say that. You get in trouble like that. Too. <laughs> and it's a different form of emotion. Right, they do have emotion. They it's have just emotion. different. But it's also that we're stereotyping by saying this. We're generalizing right. that all men are a certain way and all women are a certain True. way. And that's also not problematic right. it's not accurate. I also disagree yeah. because yeah. I think the soul is higher than the mind. Okay. Right. So this is where... And okay, and why? Let's so talk about uh, I think it's, just, that. it's a higher form of, of, for lack of a better word, and not to say, of transcendence. Yeah. Like, it's a... It's a quality that I think takes a lot of work on oneself to get to and to and to be able to connect let's say the body and the soul like who I am just not as a physical being but as this other thing that could connect to myself and to others and and to God and I think that when you study Torah and you study Hashem and that's very mind oriented. Mm-hmm. It's intellect. It's it's not the same. It's not. I think the soul is just much higher than the mind. Okay, so that's very interesting. What you're saying about the relationship between the soul and the mind, and then soul, mind, and body. The Rambam is going to have some. We might have a debate with the Rambam. I also do. So that's okay. <laughs> yeah, and that's it's honestly kind of what I want to talk about. Because I think that there are many advantages to the Rambam's conception of the soul, and then there are these limitations that I think are very interesting to talk about. And also, I just want to validate what you're saying. Like I, I agree with you also that there's a way, yes, there's a way in which there's a preoccupation with the female body in our culture, but I also think that you're 100% right that the male, it's not the male body, but it's male's animalistic drive, 100% is like... That's right. a thing. It's a stereotype. Right. But it also goes back to like the man being the provider and the female being the needing protection. Like so, one's very physical versus mm-hmm. one being very emotional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So. Okay. So I just want to like lay out kind of before we're going to read the Rambam. The first. The first. Don't worry. It's a lot of words. We, uh, it's fine. We're not going to read the whole thing. The first part he's going to talk about 
his definition of the soul. The second part, he's going to talk about the relationship between the soul and the body. Okay. Before I do that, so I just have to be clear, though. He's sort of setting himself against what I started to say. I didn't really say all of it. Like, the common conception of the soul, which is, one, that it's completely distinct from the body. And therefore, for example, like, maybe you would say that it's, like, immortal, it's everlasting, it survives the death of the physical body, something I do not know anything about, we're not going to talk about that, um, that it, yeah, it's the seat of our, like, identity, kind of what you were saying, who I am, it's the authentic, true self, um, trying to think if there's anything else, only humans have one. It's something that, that's, that's distinct to human beings. Um, and yeah, maybe it's distinct also from the mind, your assumption, it's distinct from the mind, that the mind is the intellect and the soul is some spirit beyond, or some spiritual, emotional aspect that's possibly, you're saying, beyond that. So this is what he says. Okay. Number one, first thing that he's dispelling is that all living things have a soul. In Latin, he's he's like a follower of Aristotle, and Aristotle wrote this book on the soul that's called like the anima, and that anima means soul. And that means the soul is anything that any life that's animated. So anything that lives has a soul. That means plants have souls and animals have souls and humans have souls. Okay, so that's the first thing that he's dispelling. Okay, so he says like this. Know that the human soul is one, but that it has many diversified activities. By the way, this source, the Shimona Prakim, is from the Rambam's introduction to Pirkei Avot, which he, th- he thinks, like, if you want real therapy, you should read Pirkei Avot. Very interesting, okay? So this is from his introduction to that. I think it's significant. Okay, so the soul is one, but it has diversified activities. These activities are called faculties and parts, so that the phrase parts of the soul, frequently employed by philosophers, is commonly used. He says, humans have one soul that can be divided into distinct parts. Okay. Second part of what he says. You know that the improvement of the moral qualities is brought about by the healing of the soul and its activities. Therefore, just as the physician who endeavors to cure the human body must have perfect knowledge of it in its entirety and its individual parts, just as he must must know what causes sickness that it may be avoided and must also be acquainted with the means by which a patient may be cured, so likewise he who tries to cure the soul, wishing to improve the moral qualities, must have a knowledge of the soul in its totality and its parts, must know how to prevent it from becoming diseased and how to maintain its health. He's making an interesting parallel here. He's like, just like there are physicians who are responsible for maintaining the health and healing the physical body, there are philosophers, maybe, who have just as important of a role to maintain the health and heal the soul. It's a very interesting parallel here. He's gonna, we're going to come back to in the second source. So I say that the soul has five faculties. Okay, so he says the soul is one, but it's made up of five parts. Okay, and he's going to name them. The nutritive, also known as the growing faculty. The sensitive, the imaginative, 
the appetitive, and the rational. Okay, these are like very big words. Blah. Okay, the first thing, okay, he's going to explain in this second, in this fourth box here. We have already stated in this chapter that our words concern themselves only with the human soul. For the nutritive faculty by which man is nourished is not the same, for instance, as that of the donkey or the horse. Of, or the horse. Although we apply the same term nutrition to all of them indiscriminately, nevertheless, its signification is by no means the same. So he's basically saying all living things, including animals, have, because they have like nutrition, they have a digestive system, they have a, they secrete, they procreate, like all of the biological functions of a living thing make it have a soul. Okay, that's one thing. But he says, don't be confused because every living thing has its own soul. So the plant has its own soul, and the animal has its own soul, and the human has its own soul. Every, every living thing has a soul because it has this nutrition faculty, okay, because it has a biological system of functioning and is alive, but they're all distinct. Okay, so he says, similarly, although we apply the same... Um, in the same way, the term sensation is used homonymously for man and beast. Not with the idea, however, that the sensation of one species is the same as that of another, for each species has its own characteristic soul distinct from every other. So we're saying the second, so the first is that we have like biological systems. The second is that we have sense perception. We, we hear, we see, we smell, we touch, we taste. So animals also have that. And so there are like these two first parts of the soul. Definitely the first part, I think, would apply to plants and animals and humans. The second part, senses, I guess animals probably have that. He's saying animals have that and humans have that. Plants probably don't. <laughs> probably do have that on some level. Okay. So, so at least two parts of the soul, he's sort of saying it's not just humans that have one. But don't. But everyone has their own distinct one. I'm sure you're getting here, but it's just interesting that yes, yes. both of these faculties are bodily. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, and he's describing them as part of the soul. Amazing. Yes. Exactly. 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 Okay, we're gonna get to that. Okay. Sorry, I, I should have just allowed him to speak for himself, where he talks about what nutrition means and what sensation means in the next part. So I'll just read it very quickly. Let me say that the nutritive faculty consists of the power of attracting nourishment, the retention of the same, its digestion, the repulsion of superfluities, growth, procreation, and the differentiation of the nutritive juices that are necessary for sustenance. The detailed discussion of these seven faculties belong to the science of medicine. Okay, that's Okay, so it's scientific. The second faculty of sensation consists of the five well-knowing senses of seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, and feeling, the last of which is found over the whole surface of the body, not being confined to any special member, as are the other four faculties. Okay, that last line maybe is alluding to some other thing that we're not talking about. Okay, so first two things, um, nutrition and sense perception, and their bodily. Okay, now... It sounds like he's going to say these next three things are unique to human beings, but it also sounds like he's going to say there's a hierarchy of these three things. Okay, so the third faculty is the imagination. 
It's the faculty which retains impressions of things perceptible to the mind after they have ceased to affect directly the senses which conceive them. This faculty, combining some of these impressions and separating others from one another, thus constructs out of originally perceived ideas, some of which it has never received any impression and which it could not possibly have perceived. What does all that mean? Okay, he's going to give an example that's very clear. For instance, one may imagine an iron ship floating in the air or a man whose head reaches the heaven and whose feet rest on the earth or an animal with a thousand eyes and many other similar impossibilities which the imagination may construct and endow with an existence that is fanciful. Okay, so the third part of the soul is our imagination, our ability to conceive of things that don't actually exist, like the things he mentions, like a flying pig. Okay, that sounds like something, the imagination. He's not saying it, but he stopped talking about Make sure you distinguish between the human soul and the animal soul. You know, for the other two, he was saying, make sure you distinguish between these. He stopped saying that. So it sounds like he's saying the imagination is something that's unique to human beings. Okay. The next quality, what he's calling the affetitive, is the faculty by which a man desires or loathes a thing and from which there arise the following activities, the pursuit of an object or flight from it, inclination and avoidance, anger and affection, fear and courage, cruelty and compassion, love and hate, and, un, uh, and many other similar psychic qualities. All parts of the body are subservient to these activities as the ability of a hand to grasp, that of the foot to walk, that of the eye to see, and that of the heart to make one bold or timid. Similarly, the other members of the body, whether external or internal, are instruments of the appetitive faculty. So what he's saying is appetite, we can also just call it emotions. So this is the fourth part of the soul is our emotion. And they kind of really defect, uh, um, influence and direct the movements and functioning of the body. And I think that what he's doing here is, so there's these lower level parts of the soul that have our biological functioning and our ability to perceive the se- through the senses. <coughs> then there's like the imagination. We can like conceive of things that are beyond what exists. Then there's emotion that directs the body. And now he's going to get to what he thinks is the highest part of the soul. Does he say that there's an order? So, like, yeah, the last part. Okay. Instead of down? Yeah, you're right. Why am I making that assumption? It's very fair. Okay, that's a really good thing to say to me. So, in the last section, he's going to say unequivocally that the reason is the highest. Now, does that mean that emotion and imagination are, you know, it's, it's like, a you know, it's yeah. a ladder like that? Well, not in this excerpt, but I think that there are other things that he says in other places that hint to that. But you should just take... Don't take me for, don't take me at my word for that. Like, we can we can just deal with what's written here. You're right. Okay, reason that faculty peculiar to man enables him to understand, reflect, acquire knowledge of the sciences, and to discriminate between proper and improper actions. Its functions are partly practical and partly speculative. The practical being in turn either mechanical or intellectual. By means of the speculative power. Man knows things as they really are and which by their nature are not subject to change. These are called the sciences in general. 
the mechanical powers that by which the arts, such as architecture, agriculture, medicine, and navigation are acquired, the intellectual powers that by which one, when he intends to do an act, reflects upon what he has premeditated, considers the possibility of performing it, and if he thinks it is possible, decides how it should be done. So reason, our intellectual capacity, is the fifth part of the soul. Now, this is where he says that reason is the most important. Know, however, that the soul, whose faculties and parts we have described above, and which is a unit, may be compared to matter in that it likewise has a form, which is reason. Okay, so he thinks that all things have a matter and a form. The form means that it's its purpose. Okay, so he thinks that the form, aka the purpose of the human soul, is reason. So if the form, reason, does not communicate its impression to the soul, then the disposition existing in the soul to receive that form is of no avail and exists to no purpose. As Shalomo says, also in the want of knowledge in the soul, there is nothing good. This means that if a soul has not attained a form but remains without intelligence, its existence is not a good one. So I hope that, like Sarah, you're getting upset now because... What he's saying is the purpose, the highest part of the soul is reason. It's man's purpose. And a human soul that is not involved in perfecting their intellect is not a good soul. And what he's basically doing here is saying that our three-part series should really be a two-part series. It should be mind, mind, soul, and body. The soul is the mind. Okay, so what do you want to say? It like the soul is everything. Okay. Like, because the physical right. yes. attributes at the beginning yes. are all body. Okay. And then it also sounds like, okay, yes, you need the intellect, but the whole part of the soul, like that next hierarchy or level, is that if you, you need the intellect to get to the highest part of the soul. And if you don't use it mm-hmm. properly to, for your purpose, yes, then exactly. So then it's just intellect. Mm-hmm. It's not useful intellect. It's not mm-hmm. action oriented intellect. It's not mm-hmm. purposeful intellect. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I think that highest part. I still think it dies. It works. <laughs> it works. I yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I was just gonna say that I read it. I didn't read intellect in the way that we normally define it. The way he describes it, and maybe I'm misinterpreting, Mm -hmm. is more uh, a moral compass. Like, Mm -hmm. it's how we are mindful. Like, how we pause before we act and think about, is what I'm about to say or do moral? Is it right? Um, Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that that makes sense because he's that's he's talking about that reflects upon upon what he has premeditated, considers the possibility, and then does it. You're right. I guess this next section, when he talks about the relationship between the mind and the body, or the soul and the body, um, makes me confused about that Mm -hmm. part. So maybe you can clarify it to me. Um, but also just note it, yeah, so you're right. First of all, he has, he has already clashed with the common per- perception by saying that the soul is everything, like you're saying, 
it includes the bodily functions and more. So it's physical, but not just physical. It's more than that. But that's just of humans. Like meaning the- Yes, of humans, yes, of humans. Right, this part only pertains to humans. Exactly. So when it says if you don't use whatever, there's no reason for existence, is that negating animals? Right, so the other thing that, the other hierarchy it sounds like it creates is between the human soul and other souls, like animal souls or plant souls. And I guess there's like an advantage to seeing, like, should we think of human beings as distinct from other living things? Like, on the one hand, I think like the Torah really does try to make us think that yes there's a distinction and it allows us to live like a more elevated dignified existence but also there's a danger in how we in in believing that because are we going to does it affect the way we treat are we going to treat animals worse are we going to treat like the planet worse if we think that like we have the right you know we have the highest soul um, is that going to are we going to act with a certain kinds of entitlement in the world that makes us disregard other living things? Yeah, I think it also applies to like Judaism itself and how like it's clearly stated that we're like superior, but then are we supposed to act like we're superior around people who are not Jewish? Like we're all human beings, and then it's like, I mean, there's there are people that who who read those words and they know they're better and they feel a need to show they're better. So I think it's a matter of maybe knowing that we're, we're not taking things for granted and knowing that these things, not everybody gets these things. So like human beings are the only people that get to have this part of the soul. And because we get to have this part of the soul, we should show more compassion to the things that don't get to have this part of the soul. Yeah, I yeah, that second part is very interesting. I mean, that the whole first part about like chosenness, does does Jewish chosenness mean Jewish superiority? Like I would say like 100% no. Like right. I wouldn't even use those that terminology. Mm-hmm. But I guess that's another that's another class. Yeah. Um but that second part of what you said um really resonates with me. Okay, so maybe just very quickly I'll say what he says is the relationship once he's defined the soul as five different parts it seems like they're in ascending order with reason being the purpose of the soul um i just want to quickly talk about how he describes now the relationship of the soul to the body and then reflect on what we think the advantages and limitations of the are. okay so um, okay, I'm on. It's a, it's the, it's like a, the next set of boxes. Rambam or Renevuchim. It's like on the the third page. Okay, okay. He says that the object of the Torah. There are two purposes of the Torah. One is the well-being of the soul, and one is the well-being of the body. Okay, so he he really does the, the Torah's purpose is is to perfect both of these things. Now, he is, he, this is where, Cynthia, the morality thing that you're talking about, it sounds like, I'm, I think you're right, I think moral, morality is reason, is rational, but he's saying something here that 
makes me think he's associating with the body. I'm a little confused. So he says, the well-being of the body is established by a proper management of the relations in which we live one to another. This we can attain in two ways. First, by removing all violence from our midst. That is to say that we do not do everyone as he pleases, desires, and is able to do. But every one of us does that which contributes to the common welfare. Secondly, by teaching every one of us such good morals as must produce a good social state. What he encompasses in the body, he's not even talking about an individual. It's like he's talking about the, the state. Like, society is, the, is a body. Exactly. Behavior. Yes. Behavior. Social behavior. But I don't think that contradicts necessarily because when Uh you are good, when you as a, you are part of a collective and if each one of us takes the responsibility on being a moral individual, then Mm -hmm. the entire community will be a moral community. Yes. But I guess I would think that it's my reason that's acting morally not my body that's right. acting morally that's the part right so what you're saying the connection between the individual and the social that makes sense the reason controls the body right right yeah. right right so i guess this is where he's really trying to say stop trying to distinguish between these realms it's like the human self is multifaceted and really it's really holistic and interconnected so maybe he's trying to it's, tell me to stop distinguishing. It sort of jives with that idea of like minds over matter and how your mindset and your behavior or mm-hmm. your moral compass can actually affect your body. Like, it, yeah. um, like yeah. people will say anxiety or uh-huh. other things that can have, that can lead to a rash, that can lead to, a, you know, like there are Stomach physical, yeah. right. Like mm-hmm. there's, there is a connection there. Yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting, but too. It's, yeah. You're saying in mind with the strongest part. Yeah. I mean, isn't there someone who wrote a book about that? Yeah. yeah, like, yeah. We were just talking yeah. about it. Uh, oh, yeah. really? Heal Thy Body? Didn't we yeah. just... Oh, that's... Is that the one you're talking about? It could be. I don't really know the name of the book, but I know that there the is Relations whole... of every part of your yeah. body, and when you have pain there, uh, what it's caused from. Uh, All I know is that every time... You're I've, talking about it. Yeah. Every time I complain, my husband's like... It's all in your head. <laughs> but it's, so I'm like, it's not. But there is like a but whole philosophy about that. But if everything yeah. is part of the soul, yes. he makes a distinct, he distinguishes between soul and body over here. Yeah. Which is weird. He does because he, you're right. I think that there's, yeah, he is distinguishing between soul and body. Like, he, he is making that distinction. He's not making... I don't see him as much making a distinction between soul and mind. He is making a distinction between soul and body. He does think that part of the soul is to allow for the functioning of the body. Okay. But that doesn't mean that, like, my leg is my soul. It oh, means that what allows me to walk right. is my right. soul. It controls it when the human body is physically alive. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a question about if the, what the Rambam thinks about that. Yeah. Is the body just a house for the soul? So that's definitely... So I think that... That's definitely, I would say, closer to that like common conception that 
is hard for me because it means that like I don't value my body embodied existence but they're interconnected yeah. mm-hmm. exactly it's all he's saying yeah he's not saying the body is less than the soul or the soul is no, no, for sure the not. highest order yes but they're connected yeah which makes your body also on the highest order mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that's that's an interesting way to put it yeah because the body is housing the soul and if you don't treat your body good you're not treating your soul good yeah it's all connected so is it reciprocal or is it? Well, listen to this paragraph. I want to know what you say because this is where I get a little. Maybe we'll just read the. I'm trying. Okay, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read through this paragraph. Are you on the last page now? Yeah, on the last page. Of these two objects, the one, the well-being of the soul, or the communication of correct opinions, comes undoubtedly first in rank, but the other, the well-being of the body, the government of the state, and the establishment of the best possible relations among men, is anterior in nature and time. So that means the latter object is required first. So the well-being of the body, you need it first. It is also treated in the law most carefully and most minutely because the well-being of the soul can only be obtained after that of the body has been secured. For it has already been found that man has a double perfection. The first perfection is that of the body. The second perfection is that of the soul. The first consists in the most healthy condition of his material relations, and this is only possible when man has all his wants supplied as they arise. If he has his food and other things needful for his body, like shelter, bath, and the like, But one man alone cannot procure all this. It is impossible for a single man to obtain this comfort. It is only possible in society since man, as is well known, is by nature social. So he's saying that the well-being of the soul comes first in rank. That means that it's most important. But the well-being of the body is anterior, is required first. So so it is a tiny bit. There is a hierarchy. It's saying that in order to enable the functioning of the soul, you, you know, you're not, who is a philosopher? You can't be a philosopher if you, like, don't have shelter and food. Like, you know. You're not going to be able to think Exactly. If you're filthy, dirty, you're not going to be able to concentrate. Exactly. So. And if you're lonely, you're not going to be able to concentrate. That's true, too. I want that, but that seems, that's like the emotional part or the psychological part because it's not quite body but it's not quite intellect so that's an interesting yeah that's interesting too is that really what he means because then what does this last line say why is it impossible Uh, for a man alone to procure that yeah well I think he it's a good question I mean it connects to what when he was saying before I was like why is he talking about the body as society right I mean I think that it's like if we don't have a, a sewage system, you know, you if we don't have to provide everything that is yeah. exactly, if you have to go find we need a supermarket and, properly and cook it, you're not going to have time to learn exactly, exactly, exactly. I, that's no? how I understand what he's mm-hmm. saying. So this makes it sound okay. I'll just read the last the last paragraph now. It's fine. We can skip. 
it is clear that the second and superior kinds of perfection can only be attained when the first perfection has been acquired. So the first perfection being the body, but the superior perfection being the soul. For a person that is suffering from great hunger, exactly as you were saying, thirst, heat, or cold cannot grasp an idea even if communicated by others, much less can he arrive at it by his own reasoning. But when a person is in possession of the first perfection, perfection of the body, then he may possibly acquire the second perfection, which is undoubtedly of a superior kind and alone is the source of eternal life. So what does that mean? And alone is the source of eternal life. What, what is yeah, that's kind of goes back to what you were saying. That's, yeah. good, that's what's going to take us to the next level. So what he means by eternal life. Yeah. next level. Yeah. He's coming yeah. back Somewhere. to reasoning also. Every time he yeah. mentions the, the soul, he mentions reasoning. Like yes. directly reasoning of, yes. of all the aspects, it's that. Yeah. So it's like all the other things that we spoke about just... They're not part of it. Yeah. I don't or know. they're not as important to him. Right. Like he... They're not the end result, but they're all part of the end result. They, mm-hmm. they, they facilitate up. the end right. result. They f- facilitate mm-hmm. the, no, you have yeah. to satisfy all these things so yeah. you can get them. Yeah. But I guess... Okay, what... Are you all with me? Like, I'm yeah. so sorry <laughs> if this is like... <laughs> okay. I... I... Okay. I like what the Rambam's doing. I like what he's doing. He, he's, he is the rationalist. Okay? Like, so he has a rationalist perspective of the soul. He's basically saying, actually, what it, does it mean to love God and to activate our tzel and elohim? It's to know as much as possible. Intellectual pursuit is loving God with your whole soul. Is to exercise your mind. Now, on the one hand, I really like this rationalist model. As a teacher, I like this rationalist model because I want my students to understand that intellectual pursuit is spiritual pursuit, is a religious pursuit. That when you're studying science and literature and also the st- and you're applying analytical skills to the study of the Torah, that that is religious, that that is spiritual. And I find that that's not always like understood. And so I'm very invested in that. Yeah. I think it's needed to get to the, to the spiritual pursuit. Intellectual pursuit is needed, a necessary component of spiritual pursuit. Mm-hmm. But you could be so intellectual and not, and not apply it spiritually. So you have to take that next step. Well, that's kind of, that's part of, like, my critique of this. No. (laughs) Also. (laughs) Like, what does the Rambam think? Does the Rambam think what you think? Or he just, I sort of just think he wants us to be, like, contemplating God all the time. Like, he he was a doctor. He was a philosopher. He was a a Torah scholar, halachist, talmudist, like... He, he seems like he, that's what he wants from us. He's not talking about, when you start talking about spiritual as this, transcend, this thing that transcends the intellect, I feel like he's saying they're the same. So let me clarify. Okay. When we, when we pursue intellectual, um, when we 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's it's for the capacity to know God's existence. But we have to internalize God's existence in our daily life and have that connection to God. Mm-hmm. It's not just enough to know him uh, when you're studying. Yeah. You have to know him in all aspects. And that's what I mean mm-hmm. when I say to take the intellectual part of knowing God like do and, and then and then make it spiritual, which is mm-hmm. how you live your life, how you speak to others, how you um, function in society like there are so many things you need to know to do those things it's not only intellectually based mm-hmm. it's like like I'm also when I teach I'm also looking at it from like okay I'm giving all this information please know this information but then, then they have to be able to apply it and it's also like I'm all about my job's all about creativity and being able mm-hmm. to imagine and create and make something your own and if you're not able to do those things, then you're not able to be inter- an intellectual either. Right. It's so it's all intertwined. Yeah. Well, that that really raises this other thing that I have a hard time with is that if it's a ladder, if it's a ladder of my body functions, I have senses, I have imagination, I have emotion, I have intellect. Like, why is emotion less? Why is emotional intelligence less than the intellect? And why is the imagination less? Like, the because, latter part of it... Because reason controls everything. That's why it's all less. Reason is the top, right? Yeah, but why? Is why? I guess what I'm asking is why. So because I, it just has the control. Mm-hmm. I think, like, if you're using a concrete example with, let's say, what Janet does, music, you could imagine... And you could be creative. But if you don't know how to put together notes because you didn't learn that or teach it to yourself, however you're going to do it, if you don't have the intellectual part, the the part of it coming to fruition, the part of it being actualized and realized mm-hmm. is the higher higher level. Mm-hmm. Like I, I could hear, mm-hmm. let's say... Um, I could hear music and I could understand how something would sound good, but I don't have the ability to make it sound good. Like that mm. would be that mm-hmm. that higher level. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. So yeah. it's more of actualizing the creative part of you and the uh, whatever. You can't just have, but then you can't have one without the other. I like that say, doesn't make any more. Right, but, but no, we talked about how the levels all all build on one another. So if you have the creativity first and the imagination first, then when you learn the skills, you have the ability to put it all together and then it becomes that So that then, so then maybe spiritual. it's an order, not of importance, but of an order of how things are supposed to happen, like, function, like yeah. functionally. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yes. Except for he clearly yeah. says <laughs> that I, at I, least I, reason is superior. Yeah. Right. The other, it's the other bothering me a little yeah. bit. <laughs> so, look. I guess we, we should end now. But I guess I'll end by saying like this. I like the Rambam's rationalism because I like that he identifies the religious pursuit and the intellectual pursuit. I want kids to see God when they study science. 
I want them to apply, apply analytical thinking when they study Tanakh. I really value that. But also, does this model... I, I just wonder, and Sarah's, like, trying to help us, like, integrate it, which I, which I appreciate. Um, can emotion and imagination and intellect and just embodied existence, can, can they all just be multi... It's, it's just this holistic, intertwined thing that doesn't have a hierarchy. Like, to me, that feels... It feels better. Am I allowed to say that it feels better? And also, I also worry about it. And this is where I think I lost everyone. Anyway, I worry about what it does for women. If women, like, if, if, there, are, if there are hierarchies, the hierarchies become gendered. I just think that that happens. And so to avoid saying that intellect, is more important than emotional intelligence or something like that, or the imagination. Someone who's an artist is like less, you know, <laughs> God forbid, than the scientist to avoid, and then avoid associating genders with those things in, in stereotypes. To me, that's like what the Rambam leaves up as a question. But but I like this this approach to kind of make it all fit. Um, Forget, yeah, he's a scientist. Yeah, he that's is. That's what scientists do. I know. They dissect things, pieces, yeah. and they discuss every little piece. And and so you're right. You know, I, I don't think you disagree with me in saying that all these parts are the same, as important to each other, cannot function without each other, and all that. But mm-hmm. as a scientist, you do yeah, that's definitely so his. Do. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's something very important about it, and then also some piece of it that leaves questions um thank you so much thank you any other anyone want to make any last comments i was just going to say that like a person singing a song let's say can move people as much as a scientific argument yeah so i wouldn't imagine it would be a lot exactly i I missed the beginning is he really (laughs) saying it's a letter or we understand right i mean right i definitely definitely he's saying that reason is superior but the role of imagination and emotion, yeah, and he's definitely saying that we have to take care of our body before. Or imagine a piece yeah. of art. Yeah. You know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. A piece of art can move people to think yes. and to reason. Yes. And I think whatever makes people reason and close attention is yeah. so good. Yeah. So I don't know that. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to say that I, I mean, this is funny, but going back to Flatbush, yes. they're they're taking young adults or adolescents and they're they're looking to form them and they create and they do that by having a curriculum that's filled with all exactly. of this stuff yeah. and that's why i think it is integrative yeah very holistic yeah yeah so i i think so too i mean there are required courses that are yeah. artistic yeah. in nature and so yeah. on and so forth because i think that it it creates the end. It helps to create the end result of yeah. what we're looking for yeah. here. Yeah, I agree with that. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you all so much. Yeah, yeah, of course.